that is exploring solutions to a more sustainable future. Welcome to the Yale Environmental Dialogue podcast. I am Mary Evelyn Tucker. And I'm John Grimm. And we are senior lecturers and research scholars at Yale University and co-founders and directors of the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. We are also married and have been working together for some 40 years. We're pleased today to be joined by Nancy Wright, She is pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in South Burlington, Vermont, who is focused on bringing healing through her church in situations of social and environmental justice. She's especially concerned with environmental degradation regarding water. We've worked with Nancy for over 30 years. Welcome, Nancy. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Mary Evelyn and John. In the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future, Mary Evelyn and I write that finding innovative solutions to global environmental challenges will require the inclusion of moral and spiritual perspectives. So we want to set the context here by simply saying that the moral force of religion in environmental issues is what we're emphasizing. And this is a point that has been appreciated by others who are included in the book, scientists such as Tom Lovejoy, who's deeply concerned about biodiversity and his work in the Amazon, where we have been with him, and Jane Lepchenko, who was the head of NOAA and is a specialist on oceans. And both of these scientists have affirmed and worked with us on the Religion and Ecology Project. Now, we want to start from the very beginning um, to say that there are problems and promise regarding religions. The, the promise is, of course, that science, policy, technology, law, even economics, all of these are necessary but not sufficient to solve the problems that we are facing. We really need a moral force. And we saw this with civil rights in the 1960s when segregation became a moral issue. Everything changed. And that's what's beginning to happen in the environmental movement. We can acknowledge the problems of religion for sure. But what we're trying to do is elevate and evoke the moral and ethical dimension of religions uh, for the environment changes that are needed. It's possible to see how ethics in the religious traditions have played substantial positive roles. For example, ethical perspectives on homicide and suicide have been developed by uh, many of the traditions in very lucid forms. And within the 20th century, we've even seen the religions begin to take firm positions regarding genocide. But these, uh, the promise of the religions is also involved uh, in the problems that they have in understanding the need for an ethical perspective on biocide or ecocide, the sense of the earth losing its uh, viability and its biodiversity. So uh, we have developed the religion and ecology uh, perspective to bring forward a field and a force in the study of religion and ecology, namely an academic field and the force of religious environmentalism. You can see how this work coordinates quite well with the work of Tony Laserowitz in the Climate Communication Project at Yale. 
So the academic field, uh, 20 years ago, there was no field, actually. And we did conferences at Harvard uh, for three years, 10 conferences and then 10 volumes. And this helped create a whole new academic field that's being taught across the country and in North America of religion and ecology. The force of it, religious environmentalism means grassroots projects, including uh, the re religions and churches. And this is why we have Nancy Wright with us. I'd like to introduce her a little bit more. She, of course, has done work as a parish minister and with the larger Lutheran community, with Christians and other denominations, as well as in interreligious and international settings. Um, she has worked with the environmental as the environmental liaison for the New England Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She co-authored a book with Donald Kill called Ecological Healing, a Christian Vision. She's written an article on Christian environmental justice for cross currents, and also a chapter on living water in our book on living cosmology, Christian Responses to Journey of the Universe. She and her congregation created the Congregational Watershed Discipleship Manual, which are Christian and interreligious versions available for PDF download or bound copy. She also has a doctorate of ministry from Boston University. Nancy, it's such a pleasure to have you with us, and we'd love for you to give us a feeling for your work in this area of religion and ecology. Thank you so much, Mary Evelyn and John, and you have been deep inspirations for me for decades and decades in my work in this area. So. Very briefly, the international work that you mentioned about 20 years ago was through the organization called CODEL, Coordination in Development. And it was a consortium of 38 Christian groups that worked around the world in forestry and farming and in women's projects in sustainable development. And it is for that organization that, that we traveled and, and looked at the projects that were um, received funding because they came from the communities themselves that wanted to develop sustainably. And after that, uh, it was a privilege to work at Earth Ministry based in Seattle, which was a consortium, is a consortium of 100 churches in the Puget Sound area, helping each church through a coordination coordinator in the church who often started um, mobilizing their churches through activities such as um, helping parishioners purchase fair trade coffee and changing light bulbs to be more sustainable, developing a care for creation committee in the church, and then developing into advocacy for uh, energy and for water in the Puget Sound area. And then in my present parish, as Mary Evelyn noted, we developed uh, over seven months of my doctoral work. The congregation worked on water issues, including um, through testing of the water for phosphorus and nitrogen. Each family was given test tubes so that they could go out to close by rivers and ponds. And then we tested the water at the church here. We built rain barrels. We created a Lake Champlain action cruise and tutorial. And then also other opportunities to take um, small groups out onto the water onto Lake Champlain, um, and the, those days were blessed by Abenaki Chief Don Stevens before we began. And we discovered that even some people who actually have homes right on Lake Champlain, they said to us they, that they had never been out in silence on a boat. We allow time for silence and for meditation as we're canoeing along. 
So we, in generally, hope to strengthen churches as churches are generally in decline um, by strengthening their relationship with nature and seeing that we are all part of a watershed and who, what other creatures live with us in the watershed and what do they need? And then taking a strong stance in the community as leaders for our bioregion. Thank you, Nancy. It's really wonderful to consider these activities of religious environmentalism and how they ground the 40 big ideas for a sustainable future that are mentioned and discussed in the book, A Better Planet. And along with religious environmentalism, this sense of the the force, we in the Religion and Ecology Project have also been very concerned with developing the academic field for the study of religion and how it relates to local uh, bioregions and ecosystems. And the, this uh, project then has been grounded in an approach that we identify with the terms retrieval, reevaluation, and reconstruction. Let me just give you a brief overview. Retrieval is a sense of returning to a tradition's past and understanding ways in which the, the scriptural uh, indications and the commentaries on these scriptures and the ways in which rituals in these traditions interacted by means of individuals and communities with local bioregions, and that these then are retrieved and brought forward for reevaluation in terms of their contemporary relevance. And indeed, if they have traction for the tradition, it, it opens up the possibility of reconstruction. Now, one example that begins to make this clear is the uh, focus on dominion in the book of Genesis and the Jewish and Christian traditions. And this idea of dominion has been revisited and uh, reconsidered in terms of what the Hebrew was after and bringing forward ideas of stewardship and creation care and an understanding that within these traditions, this can be retrieved and reevaluated for new ways of understanding the tradition. So there are other examples also. So the one from dominion to stewardship is probably the key one in our times, and theologians are working on that. And Nancy will comment in a moment about ecotheology and um, how theologians and, and pastors are trying to reinterpret the Christian tradition. But I want to just touch um, on the tradition I have also studied um, in great detail for uh, many decades now, and that is Confucianism, which has probably influenced actually more people over time than any other tradition. Um, and yet it's not well known in the West because of translations um, not necessarily being available. But we've just returned from an extraordinary two weeks in China um, where the revival of uh, this retrieval and reevaluation reconstruction is very evident um, in the revival of Confucianism. And this has been um, ongoing for the last decade and so. And the teacher uh, who we were celebrating, who we worked with at Harvard, Duwei Ming, for his 80th birthday, has been one of the leading um, uh, Confucians in that revival. He's now at Beijing University. Now, we showed our film, Journey of the Universe, and had Confucian scholars respond to this in terms of how is a scientific cosmology and a so-called spiritual cosmology coming out of Confucianism. How are these related? Um, and, and how do we come to a broader sense of ecology coming out of cosmology? 
Now, the notion of retrieval for the Confucians is the movement is a, what's called national learning. Uh, Confucianism had been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution during the 70s, but now all of the schools and universities are teaching the Confucian classics again. So this is a retrieval of this tradition, and it's being reevaluated in relation to contemporary problems such as um, ecology and the environment. So the reconstruction is, is taking place in what's being called ecological civilization, where Confucianism is being drawn on as a key indigenous component of Chinese culture and civilization. In other words, the point here is that the environmental ethics in China are going to have a Confucian and Taoist component. Now, we're talking about well over a billion people um, being involved in, in this tradition um, and this revival of a deep sense of the unity of what's called cosmos, earth, and human. That's kind of their trinity. And the notion that the human completes the universe and the earth. The human works with all of the myriad transformative powers of, of the earth, meaning ecosystems, meaning biodiversity, meaning water systems, and so on. So as one cultivates oneself, one is also cultivating and taking care of these ecosystems. That's the ground for a, a remarkable um, ecological ethics in China of Confucian uh, ethics within this context of an ecological civilization, which comes from the highest levels of government. Xi Jinping mentions this often. It's actually in the constitution in China that there's a need for an ecological civilization. And this revival um, is taking place in universities, as I've mentioned, um, across the country. But even one example of a popular understanding of Confucianism, one professor of sociology and journalism wrote a book on the Confucian Analects, and it sold 10 million copies. So the scale of this is almost unfathomable. As we showed Journey of the Universe and as we did this connection to Confucian ecology, um, 78,000 people were watching this on live streaming. So there's a deep interest uh, in this in, in China, and we hope to continue that work um, over the next number of years. And the variety of expressions of this uh, retrieval, reevaluation, and reconstruction in the religious traditions of environmental concern is evident also among indigenous peoples. And there it takes a very different turn because this uh, sense then of uh, the uh, Hunkpapa peoples in Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota provide a very interesting example of drawing upon traditional teachings uh, regarding water and the ways in which water has nurtured the people and given life to the people. And so when a, the Dakota Access Pipeline was proposed for moving across the Missouri River close to the Hunkpapa Reservation, the youth of that reservation rose up and were then joined uh, by other Native groups, and it became one of the largest expressions of Native American gatherings in the contemporary period to protect the water. So drawing on their traditional teachings regarding water as life-giving, that became the basis of their retrieving these teachings and reevaluating their relationship to this pipeline and resisting the imposition of this pipeline. And we find also the Wet'suwet'en people in northern British Columbia in trying to protect their reserve also from a pipeline being uh, put across it to bring tar 
sands oil for transport across the ocean to other countries. So among indigenous peoples, we find very interesting examples of bringing traditional teachings forward, retrieving in that sense, and evaluating ways in which they can protect that which has given the people life and reconstructing their, their traditions and the expression of their traditions in these ways. It's very interesting to see this happening among so many indigenous peoples around the planet from protecting, protecting islands that are in danger of being lost from sea level rise to uh, eco-villages in India joining with indigenous people to marketing uh, uh, plants and crops and materials in new ways. This understanding that indigenous people are stepping, for, stepping forward, the resurgence of their sense of in, uh, environmental protection. And I find uh, there are some good examples also, Nancy, in your world also. Yeah, we want to hear about the eco-theology in the, in the Christian world. So jump in. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to both of you so much. And, and um, John mentioned the development from dominion to stewardship. Actually, of course, the, the original meaning of the word dominion in, in the Hebrew scriptures means for humans to have dominion, like God has dominion. And God, of course, is creator and sustainer of the universe, as the Psalms and Job and, and many other texts um, describe. So Dominion means that kind of creative, um, sustaining uh, relationship rather than dominance as we think about it with power over. So that is one discussion going on. Um, another discussion going on uh, within the Christian tradition especially has to do with the question of atonement and salvation. Atonement often has met, meant that uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection atones for uh, humanity's sinfulness, and therefore, in a very simplistic way to state it, if human beings believe in Jesus and take him as their savior, their, their sinfulness will be forgiven and they will achieve a heavenly life after death. And while that still may resonate with many people and still does, and also, of course, many of these profound statements have truth in them, uh, that kind of stance, uh, on the one hand, does not include Jesus' teaching, which was not about life after death, but rather about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God on earth, where all human beings have enough to eat and drink and where Jesus was aware that God took care of lilies and therefore would take care of humanity. Uh, but also it, it stresses too much um, humanity rather than the rest of creation. So many people working in, in Christian uh, reevaluation and reconstruction prefer to talk about the sacredness of creation and they do that often in through describing the scriptural texts about the cosmic Christ. And that is the understanding in the beginning of the Gospel of John and also in the first chapter of Colossians, especially, that Christ is the word or the principle of loving order through which all creation uh, was created and through which all creation is held together. And the ramifications from that belief is that, of course, if all creation is sacred, then humanity can not only encounter God in all creation, but it's a sin to despoil creation. 
So that leads finally to questions such as about the local water, which is of course used in baptism. Uh, what does it mean if the local water is polluted? Does baptism still have effect? What does it mean when we ask for um, cleansings from water that we have polluted? Then should we ask for forgiveness uh, about uh, having polluted the water? An example from my church is that the, uh, we were baptizing an infant and I asked people to bring water from both the lake and the watershed, Lake Champlain watershed. And it was not an immersion of the baby in the water. It was simply putting the water on the baby's forehead. And the parents felt that that was fine, but the grandparents felt that the water wasn't clean enough. So we had to have another bowl of water that was water from the tap beside the water from the lake. Now the water from the lake, um, you know, as other large water bodies, um, it suffers from um, phosphorus and nitrogen and sometimes algae blooms and so on, but it is certainly not dangerous. I swim in it. So, so that was a question about the cleanliness of water. And then finally, an eco-justice question that's raised is who has access to clean water? Not only, of course, for baptism, but for drinking. And what advocacy and what justice um, strategy should Christians undertake to ensure that all people have enough to drink, as Jesus said, uh, was eternal life is dependent on all people having enough to drink and eat because he is among those people who suffer from thirst and hunger. So I just want to um, punctuate that with saying that the Greek Orthodox patriarch Bartholomew, one of the great leaders uh, in the environmental movement, um, had eight a symposium, Religion, Science, and the Environment, focused on water issues, largely in Europe, um, major seas and bodies of water, but also in Greenland and the Amazon and the Mississippi River. And um, Jane Lubchenco, who's in this book, was one of the leaders of the early uh, conferences, and we went on, on many of them. Um, and he had his words are, uh, what we're doing are crimes against creation and ecological sin. And this is in particular because he has the tremendous sense of the cosmic Christ of the universe, which is very present in Greek Orthodox tradition. And that, um, the, the patriarch and, and this eco-theology has been a big influence on Pope Francis and his encyclical um, Laudato Si on care for our common home. He mentions the patriarch at the very beginning, and he also mentions the challenges of growth growth and development and unlimited um, economic materialism, which he is challenging, uh, to say we need new models and we need a tremendous sense of eco-justice. He calls on the idea of the cry of the earth, the cry of the poor, which is Leonardo Boff's, the liberation theologian from Latin America, his phrase. So we just wanted to underscore that um, Christian leaders, especially the uh, ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew of the Greek Orthodox Church and Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church are working on these issues um, on a very high level and very influential level. Uh, in the article that we contributed for the volume, we're developing methods and approaches in the academic field of religion and ecology and 
two terms, two phrases that we use in this regard are religious ecologies and religious cosmologies. And here we're trying also to make the connection between on-the-ground activities and ideas, so religious ecologies on the ground and religious cosmologies that are embedded in the scriptures and the commentaries within these traditions. Let me just step back and give some sense of what we mean by these phrases. Religious ecologies, uh, in the uh, Islamic uh, religious tradition, uh, the sense of the uh, trust idea in the Quran, uh, it, uh, it brings forward a cosmological perspective that the divine Allah, when creation was undertaken, uh, called out to creation to see who would accept the trust the sense of the stewardship of creation. And the creatures declined, but the humans stepped forward. And this idea then that there is embedded in the Islamic tradition a cosmological understanding that the human accepts responsibility. This religious cosmology then implements itself on the ground in a religious ecology. And we find within the uh, Islamic tradition a concern for philanthropic activity in which lands are set aside for social justice reasons. So social justice and eco-justice are embedded within the Islamic tradition, bringing together cosmological thinking and on-the-ground activity. Uh, so also uh, we find uh, the examples that we developed in our uh, book in the religious field of religion and ecology, we developed these, these two terms and a sense in which um, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, for example, the uh, concepts of the Dharma of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, are, are embedded in the bodies of the Buddha, in each individual, and also in the sense of the teachings of the Buddha and the larger expression of the cosmic Buddha. So Buddhism also has these, this sense of religion and ecology embedded in it. So by identifying this notion that all traditions have religious cosmologies, where did we come from? Why, <clears throat> why are we here? Um, the creation stories of the various world religions, um, we were trying to identify these. And we have also worked on a project um, with bringing forward the scientific cosmology of evolution and the science of ecology. This project is called Journey of the Universe, um, which consists of a film, which won an Emmy Award and was on PBS for three years, uh, a book published by Yale Press, uh, translated into seven languages. Both of these, the film and book, are translated into Chinese, which we used recently in China. There's also 20 interviews that I did with uh, with scientists telling us more about the various parts of the evolutionary story and environmentalists showing us on the ground how eco-cities, eco-education, um, eco-ecology, uh, all of these different forms are beginning to emerge um, in, in very practical ways that draw on the sense that we're part of a large dynamic story, an epic of evolution, if you will. Um, so this project took us 10 years to complete, um, weaving together the cosmologies of world's religions, but the scientific cosmology of evolution is the basis of this. 
Um, and we have also done online classes with Yale and Coursera. About 28,000 people are taking these classes right now on Journey of the Universe and on Thomas Berry, who is our teacher. We've just completed a biography of him from Columbia. And Thomas Berry was the one who came up with an idea that we need this new story. Um, that was in 1978. And um, he did a book with Brian Swim called The Universe Story in 92. And then our work with Brian Swim came out um, in 2011. So we have these two projects, one on religion and ecology and the other journey of the universe, uh, one bringing together the science uh, with the world's religions and the other trying to evoke the world's religions into these great ecological challenges. And maybe we can just draw Nancy out one more time because by knowing Nancy over 35 years, we worked with her with Thomas Berry, and we'd love to um, have Nancy reflect on his significance in developing um, a sense of a new story for, for both religion and ecology and the journey of the universe. So uh, when I was in college at Barnard University majoring in, in religion, I studied Teilhard de Chardin, the great... A theologian and paleontologist, and he just expressed what I already had a sense of, that um, creation is imbued with spirit, with Christ, and all moving forward in an evolutionary sense. By the way, I was brought up by a geologist father out in the Colorado Rockies in a congregational church. There has never, ever been a split in my mind between science and religion. And then I met Thomas Berry, who um, is a cultural historian, and I describe him recently as an evocateur. He, with his great knowledge about cultures, he was able then to evoke in people listening to him and in his writings, the presence of really, I would say the spirit of, of creation, the spirits in creation. Um, along with his deep analysis about how all institutions need to be rethought and restructured for a beneficial human earth relationship. I remember his talking about uh, the deep tragedy of the extinction of a species of life and his ability to be a kind of wise teacher in the present moment brought a deep sadness into me at that moment as well as his evocation of what it is like to go out and to look at the stars at night and his deep sense of the need of all children, especially to be able to be immersed in creation in order to be full human beings, full of enjoyment and celebration and responsibility. And also to put it negatively in order to not be autistic. And he said that humanity at the present time or some, many human beings are really artistic in their lack of relationship and understanding about the web of life around them. So he is a prophet for our time and I'm so privileged to have known him along with Pope Francis and Greta Thunberg and all the others um, who are calling humanity fundamentally to account for where they are on this planet at this time and who they are, what their identity is, going back to the question that God asks Adam and Eve and the great mythological story in the beginning of Genesis, chapter three, I believe. They're walking in the garden and God calls out to them, where are you? And that I think is the question that the great prophets are asking us to answer with truth at this time. Where are we and who are we? 
And I think that brings us back to the question again of the moral force that we were trying to elucidate in the article for Better Planet, this sense of bringing Thomas Berry's thought also where he had a phrase that encapsulated much of his thinking in this regard when he would say, the universe is not a collection of objects but a communion of subjects. And in that phrase, he was trying to bring, uh, uh, bring forward a sense of the voices of the earth community as all, we're all participating in this long journey of the universe, and it's a shared communion experience when we hear the voices and the subjective reporting of, the, 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 of biodiversity, of the expressions of life, telling us of their journey in this universe awareness. I think we can conclude with a few lines from our biography of Thomas Berry. Um, his intellectual breadth and spiritual depth defy adequate description. He was widely read in world history and religions and lived immersed in the narratives of time that were continually expanding from human history to earth history to universe history. Thomas Berry sought a way to be grounded in the great vessel of life, the cosmos, and evoked this with the power of story, which elevated the voices of bird song and migrations, revered the living forests and ancient mountains, evoked the roaring power of oceans and rivers, and wove it all together in a way that makes one feel the power of star birth and galaxy formation. His lucid language broke out of scholarly constraints to bring fresh, fresh rays of hope into the eyes of young and old alike. There are few people who've grappled for so long to bring forth a healing vision for the earth community, a term he created to indicate our shared sense of belonging to something greater, humans and nature in continuity. I think this describes our work both in religion and ecology and in Journey of the Universe. Thank you so much for listening today. Yes, thank you. The Yale Environmental Dialogue is produced by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Music is by Ben Cosgrove. 